of this evening talk is something about understanding and equanimity or that kind of peace which wisdom can bring you know the peace of wisdom is a special kind of peace seems to me that this is a theme very important very crucial and we are at a crucial time in the retreat we are in the heart of the retreat these days the mind has quieted down and uh, gathered energy and momentum so it's good that we use the power of the mind to do important work to do the work of inner liberation good that we do it now because towards the end of the retreat uh, usually we see another aspect of the power of the mind and which is the aspect of getting very restless with a lot of energy the energy that uh, has been accumulated during the retreat mm was thinking of this story that um, Gapa Chogyam, um, a Western teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, recounts. And there's a story about a spiritual seeker who goes to the Himalayas and he's looking for a famous woman teacher. Uh, I think they are called Gonchen Ma, great meditation teachers. And to his delight, he is accepted as a disciple to this Gonchen uh, Ma. And she tells him, okay, you start right away tomorrow and go in that cave and uh, from early morning uh, to evening, you'll uh, not be thinking at all. <laughs> do whatever you know, do whatever you are able to, to reach this uh, uh, aim. So he goes into this cave and tries whatever he can and he fails and at the end of the day he goes back to the Gonchen Ma and uh, very depressed and he says you know, I just couldn't do it after uh, a short time it got very difficult but she says very good and uh, tomorrow you go back into that same cave and do the opposite practice you'll be thinking all day long no gaps <laughs> so um, <laughs> the seeker uh, you know uh, 
takes courage again. First of all, he expected to be um, kicked out, and uh, he is not. And he's been even given a practice which he thinks is very easy. I mean, I'm, I, I'd be great at this. Yeah? <laughs> and the first few hours, he's very successful. But after a few hours, something doesn't quite work as he expected to. The mind starts blanking out. <laughs> Gaps. You know, silence. And he tries everything. You know, elaborate sexual fantasies. Nothing works. <laughs> so he goes back to the Gonchen map and says, you know, I couldn't do it. <laughs> so she says, okay, now you're ready to practice. <laughs> yeah, you, you start to know something about the power of the mind. And basically the power of the mind has to do with the causes of the Second Noble Truth, with attachment, aversion, and confusion. A few nights ago, we were talking about commitment to the practice, and commitment becoming more religious, uh, less out of curiosity, and more religious as the time goes by. Now, one of the reasons why it becomes so is that through the practice, practicing, we realize uh, how strong this power is, how all-pervasive the power of uh, the mind of attachment is. And we very um, obviously realize more and more that unless uh, there is something equally all-pervasive. Um, we, we don't have a, a, an adequate means. We don't have a proportionate means to that, to that power, to that uh, invasive and, and all-pervasive power. And it's as though we uh, more and more understand that um, the practice has to sort of grip us the same way that the mind of attachment grips us. The practice somehow has to become the same. You know, more and more we tend to give ourself, ourselves over to the practice, surrender to the practice, because we see in a very organic way that uh, it takes a very strong power and therefore a very strong commitment to overcome that incredible power that the mind of attachment has. And the more we see this, the more religious, uh, namely total, radical, our commitment becomes. If we look at the difference 
between calmness and equanimity, we uh, can reflect on this very major theme of the mind of attachment, his power, its power, and what we can do about it. Calmness itself is frail, is fragile, is brittle, can go away just in a second. Equanimity is different. Equanimity is not only calmness, it's calmness plus understanding, plus wisdom, which makes that calmness much stronger and much solid. Let's imagine that we are experiencing, that we are savoring a state of calm. Maybe everything is in a state of calm. Uh, we are experiencing calmness outside. Maybe it's a beautiful afternoon in the fall, beautiful colors. Uh, the air is very still outside. And uh, we are in our home and uh, good health and we feel and the pleasure, the intrinsic pleasure of a calm body and a calm mind. And at one point, for some reason, maybe the telephone rings, the situation changes. Something slightly unpleasant maybe on the phone and we find ourselves in a different situation. We find ourselves in a state of suffering. What happened? We had developed an attachment to that pleasant state of calmness. And because of this attachment, we are not ready to be in the next situation. We want to be with the old situation. We want to stick to that state of calmness. And this attachment creates suffering. We are like prisoners. We cannot jump in the new situation. We cannot be fully with the next situation. So we suffer. And life is one next situation after the other. Uh, if we are attached, we have this stickiness which uh, keeps us from being available to the present moment, to the next situation. We cannot be fully in the next situation, and therefore we suffer. We are not available. We are not available for life. So we reflect along these lines, and we see that 
attachment and suffering are connected. And we understand, if we reflect on this, that if we were not attached to that pleasant sensation, we would have enjoyed the calmness, but then we would have not suffered when the new set of conditions arose. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with that story about Zen master Hakuin, who was accused of being the father to a newly born child. And uh, this angry person brought him the child, saying, you are his father, and you are going to take care of the child. This was not true. But Hakuin said, oh, it is so, and took the child and took good care of the child. Months went by, and at one point, uh, this couple changed their mind, and they went back to Hakuin asking for forgiveness and for the child. And Hakuin said, oh, is it so? And gave the child back to them. So, no attachment, no suffering. But suppose we are not Hakuin. <laughs> what do we do? The crucial thing is turning the mind of attachment into the object of our awareness, of our mindfulness. Accompanying what's happening with awareness. Accompanying means being together. So maybe the telephone rings and we answer and we speak and we lay down the telephone and we feel something and we sit. All this should be accompanied with awareness. You know, while the mind of attachment uh, is being activated. Mind of attachment means a complex uh, knot of, uh, of, of causes for suffering. It's attachment, it's aversion, it's fear, all combined together. Uh, sometimes we might have a simple idea about attachment, which is actually quite a sophisticated uh, concept. We can think of attachment in terms of wanting, but wanting uh, is everywhere. For instance, if we just wanted to be more mindful, and if we wanted this more passionately, we would be certainly better off. So wanting uh, is not the real meaning of attachment. The mind of attachment is the judging mind, the reactive mind, the fearful mind, the aversive mind. It comes all together. And when we practice, we have an asset, and I'm 
thinking of the retreat and what we're doing right now here. And the asset is our somehow having developed some familiarity with uh, the, the breath. So we have developed some calmness on the one hand. We can take refuge in this calmness on the one hand. And sometime, sometimes leave this harbor of relative peace and calmness and go and see the mind of attachment. Maybe for short periods of time and then we go back to what is easier because we have developed some familiarity with that sensation, the breath. We're working with that sensation which is often pleasant so it is easier. From there we can visit and at this point of the retreat uh, we've been encouraging you to do so the mind of attachment. You know, whenever and wherever uh, there is no uh, peacefulness, clarity, understanding, there is some uh, wave of the mind of attachment which is at work. So we go and have a look to uh, the mind of attachment. The attitude, as we were saying this morning in one of the groups, which we bring to this task is very crucial, is very important. The ideal attitude is to treat, to deal with the mind of attachment exactly as it were the breath. You know, the same way as we go back to the breath, ideally, this, the same way we go back to this something, maybe fear, maybe boredom, maybe uh, whatever, disappointment, that we want to look into. This is not easy because the breath is simple and the feeling that we are dealing with is not simple. But having some familiarity with the breath can help us develop at least a similar attitude in going back again and again to the feeling that we want to explore. Same attitude. We don't expect the breath to change. We go back to the breath and we expect the breath to be the breath. So suppose we have resentment. Let's go back to resentment, resentment, resentment. Now, the attitude that we naturally have is an attitude of wanting the resentment to go away. So, in doing this, we are trying to cure attachment through injections of attachment. We are curing attachment with attachment. And, of course, it doesn't work. The attitude is simply reinforcing the mind of attachment. A very important piece of understanding is that the alternative is either being mindful or proliferating. In other words, the judging mind generates another judging mind, the reactive mind generates another reactive mind. We are reacting in the face of our reactions, we are judging our judging mind. 
and goes on and on, and there is no end to it. Therefore, can, be, can we be simple and go back to the feeling, trying to have uh, as much as possible a naked, a bare experience of the feeling? Noting, like resentment, resentment might be, and for me is, a very helpful device to stay with that feeling in that moment instead of taking off with the proliferating mind, instead of having this recreation of attachment, uh, which is like self-defeating. Going back, coming back to the feeling in the same way as we come back to the breath, with the same attitude, and as soon as we see that we have, and this is very easy to happen, an expectation, now expectation is the mind of attachment, and that is going to be the object of our mindfulness. There is the cutting edge of the mind of attachment right now, if I see that this is what is happening. Can we do can we train ourselves in doing this every time as it were the first time? Exactly the same thing which is requested of us for in terms of the breath. You know, come back, start again every time as it was the first time. Can we go back to the resentment as it was the first time? I remember once discussing the differences between um, a, psycho a psychotherapeutic approach and a mindfulness approach uh, with a group of people, and coming to the conclusion that the mindfulness approach is somehow simpler and more difficult because there is no uh, dealing with any content. If I, for instance, have a certain reaction uh, in front of another person, I can study this reaction of mine and come to some insight in terms of my personal history in a, in a therapeutic context. Maybe that person reminds me of my father or my mother or whatever. And having this insight is helpful and I certainly uh, can incorporate this in my uh, meditative work. But the meditative work works along a different line. I go back and see my reaction, and I see it again, and I see it again, and I, no, the crucial, this is mindful, then the crucial point is understanding, and I understand, and I see the suffering which is connected with this reaction of mine. It takes more energy. If we don't have enough energy, we will forget. So we will have that reaction many times without awareness. Or we won't believe in what we are doing if we don't have the energy which comes from 
the calmness and concentration part of the work. So it's simpler and more difficult and is based on a repetition again and again and again relentless in order for this contemplation to be effective in the long term because we want it to be effective immediately out of wanting relief it has to be a contemplation of dukkha in other words we contemplate attachment aversion the mind of attachment more and more understanding that this is suffering the more the contemplation of the mind of attachment is a contemplation of suffering the more effective it becomes now I would like to emphasize a word which is feeling the necessity to feel feel the suffering of the reactive mind the suffering which is connected with our reacting mind it's not thinking it's not it's not even just seeing it's feeling we have to really get in touch with the suffering that we are generating that we are doing to ourselves otherwise we won't ever be convinced and no letting go is possible if we don't feel the suffering that we are generating now this is uh, you know a very mm, crucial turning point you know being able to develop basically as we already said a few evenings ago a new sensitivity we become more sensitive to the suffering that we are generating unless we have this feeling unless we feel the suffering we are still speculating maybe you know in a in a in a in a helpful way uh, we are reflecting but we aren't realizing we are not perceiving the uh, the gist of of all this issue of the mind of attachment of the reactive mind and what its effect constantly is because the reactive mind goes on all the time and someone I remember said it's good that we don't realize it at once it's good that it takes some time for us to realize that the reactive mind is go goes on all the time because if we saw it all at once maybe we would just resign see the discouragement is another piece of the reactive mind oh no still going on reactive mind uh, how long am I going to do this reactive mind judging mind undoubtedly 
the wisdom part, the feeling of the suffering and the desire, the healthy desire to let go of all this unnecessary suffering generates compassion. So from a certain base of equanimity, some compassion comes because we see that we are generating suffering. And from the judging mind attitude, we gradually switch to the compassionate mind attitude. It's organic. If we keep looking, if we keep contemplating dukkha and its causes, we organically go into compassionate mind. Because we are not judging evaluating what's happening. We are feeling the dukkha. We are feeling the suffering. See, it's very different from, ah, my practice is going well, it's going not so well. This is judging. We are not, we are not feeling what's happening. We are not feeling what this attitude uh, brings with, with itself, with it. But once we start feeling it, a compassionate mind arises. And uh, I think Aya Kaman has, a, has a, a very nice passage on, on this. She says, uh, a compassionate heart feels compassion all the time because everybody has suffering. It is embedded in the first noble truth of the Buddha. There is no, uh, nobody without it because uh, life is suffering. This doesn't mean tragedy. It means that all that happens contains friction and irritation and a, and a constant wish for more or for remaining so or for becoming different. Constant friction, constant suffering. Gelsan Gyatso, who's a Tibetan Lama, says, when ordinary bodhisattvas experience even the slightest suffering, they develop greater compassion for sentient beings because they see their own suffering as an example of the sufferings of others. I think some, something more specific along this line happens in the practice, which helps the generation of compassion and wisdom. If we practice, sometimes we'll see a wave of aggression, a wave of hostility coming to us. Say we, we, we heard that someone has criticized us, or someone 
has said something very negative about us. And maybe this person is right, and maybe this person is wrong. But in any case, there is this wave of aggression, of hostility. And we, if we practice, we see, literally see, this wave which lands in our consciousness. Okay. Now what happens? What happens is that a counter wave of aggression and hostility takes off from our part, on our part, because we are hurt. We feel hurt. We feel wounded. We feel that this person is not wanting us, is rejecting us, is not liking us. And so, another wave of hostility takes off on our part. What keeps this dynamic going is delusion, is a, a, an important uh, dimension of delusion, of ignorance. Because we feel that our, in, under these circumstances, that our aggression is, has a different quality to it. That our hostility in response to someone else's hostility has a different quality. We feel entitled to have that hostility because we were quiet. We were minding our business and this person said this and that and hurt us. So our hostility is not bad, it's good. We are quite convinced of it. It's, it's, you know, it's taken for granted. But how on earth can we prove this? Where is any hint that just feeling aggression, just feeling negative about the other person has any difference whatsoever with that wave of hostility which came on to us? It is exactly the same. Maybe we are right, maybe we are wrong. That's a different matter. The quality of our feeling, the quality of our anger is exactly the same. So we are not different from the person who's sending us hostility. We are, you know, sharing the same energy field, exactly the same. We delude ourselves into thinking that our field is a noble field and the other field is a base. But this is our concept. As a matter of fact, we are sharing the same energy field. See, when we start realizing this fact, It's an important turning point because we feel, we see, we touch that we are in the same boat with the other person. So 
the other person is less of a demon and or we are less of an angel just the same thing and this thing which we might have uh, thought of as very strange can happen which is accepting someone else's hostility accepting the aggression of another person because that's what's happening if we see that we are in the same boat that we are sharing the same feeling uh, no matter what we think no matter what we despite what, what, what we our conditioning is doing to us we are forced to admit that the other person is like us this is something this has you know there's some shattering quality to it and we start realizing this fact it's not a thought and the accepting of another person's hostility is the only way we can stop we can begin stopping generating our hostility it's only when we accept <coughs> someone else's hostility someone else's aggression that we can stop generating our aggression so understanding plays an important role in the understanding of suffering of letting go of wisdom of compassion from this understanding much compassion can come whenever we realize this it's as though something just fell you know, we are about to do say something and it's gone there is no point it's not true it's a delusion Before training in compassion, says Geshe Gelsang Yatsu, we may sometimes feel compassion, but at other times we feel anger and jealousy. When training in compassion, we try to abandon anger, jealousy, and other negative minds, but in unguard unguarded moments, we may forget our training and anger may suddenly arise. As we progress further in our practice, we will eventually reach a stage where our compassion is so strong that even when momentarily distracted, we still do not become angry. So, may we all reach this stage. 